I think writing can be one way to get to know your unconscious. The writing process really gave an experience of what some of these themes that were coming up and having to focus on it and really make sense of it was very organizing for me. There were so many things that I thought about or experienced or felt powerful to me that I never had really put into words or articulated to myself even about my positionality, what it has to do with my experiences, what gets projected onto me as a woman leader, what really revs my engine as a group leader, what does that have to do with gender dynamics and, and other aspects of my identity. So writing about it was really powerful and I would say even more so was editing these broad range of chapters where people were raising issues that I had never read about and in many cases has never had the opportunity to talk about. And it opened up a forum for discussion right at a time in our, I think, our, our national consciousness that was so, so profound about race and power and privilege. I had to do a lot of vetting my ideas with other people, figuring out what my own blind spots were in the writing and editing process. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch. I'm Angela Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. If you enjoy what you hear and would be interested in supporting this podcast, please consider liking and subscribing, as this really does help. Most importantly, thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Angelo Siliberti, and I'm very excited to be sharing today's show with you. I had the joy of talking with Yoon Kane and Annie Weiss, two of the editors behind Women, Intersectionality, and Power in Group Psychotherapy Leadership. Sarah Lynn Maslink, who's also an editor, was unable to participate in our conversation, and she was very much missed. But I still love talking with Annie and Yoon and thought this was a really interesting and thought-provoking conversation. I have a feeling you're going to enjoy it as well. A couple of things I just wanted to note before we get into the interview. In the show notes, you will find a list of all the contributors to this incredible book. And there will also be links to Yoon's website as well as Annie's. They're both doing some incredible things and have some really exciting projects. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, you can find out how you might be able to engage more with both of them through those links. So the first interviewee, Yoon Kane, is an author, keynote speaker, and psychotherapist. A graduate of clinical training at Yale University, she has over 20 years of experience practicing psychological treatment. Having honed her entrepreneurial skills as a co-founder of a medical wellness practice, she went on to establish and launch two new ventures, Mindful Psychotherapy Services, a mental health clinic based in Manhattan, and MindLink, a software company founded in Maui. Yoon's expertise and passion for mental health and psychological wellness led her to author two publications, her award-winning debut book, The Mindfulness Workbook for Depression, and her second peer-reviewed book, Women Intersectionality and Power in Group Psychotherapy, which has been celebrated as a groundbreaking collaboration by industry experts and is now used as a primary text in group psychology courses at major universities. Yoon published both works with a mission to extend her clinical expertise beyond the walls of the therapy space. In addition to her entrepreneurial, therapeutic, and literary pursuits, 
Yoon is presently conducting doctoral studies in the neuroscience of leadership at William James College. Her research, examining the psychological effects of marginalization and the resilience of leadership, integrates her expertise and understanding of trauma in individual and group psychology. Yoon is committed to her mission of empowering integrated leadership beyond the realm of mental health, impacting wider systems and organizations. And Annie Weiss. Annie is a lecturer, author, and clinical social worker with a private practice in Newton, Massachusetts. She holds degrees from Yale University and Smith College and has taught group dynamics to Harvard medical students, psychologists in Beijing, and students at both the Boston Institute for Psychotherapy and Boston College. She has provided coaching at Harvard Business School's Executive Leadership Program and consultation to community mental health centers. A certified psychotherapist and fellow of the AGPA, Annie leads local, national, and international trainings on topics related to group therapy and facilitates process-oriented training groups for clinicians, both online and in person. Her publications include Finding Each Other in a Crowded Room, Internal Family Systems and Group Psychotherapy, and The Benefits of Group Observation for Therapists in Training. Annie's approach integrates attachment theory, internal family systems, and interpersonal neurobiology. She is dedicated to anti-racist work in climate justice, her family, her two mutts, and her garden. Hope you enjoyed this interview with Annie Weiss and Yoon Kane. Well, welcome to the podcast, Annie and Yoon. Very Thank excited to have you both here. Hi. First off, just congratulations on this book, Women, Intersectionality, Empower, and Group Psychotherapy Leadership. I loved reading it, and I've been very excited to talk with you guys about it. I thought we could talk about how the idea for this book came together and what inspired the project and what you guys were hoping readers would come away from the book with. Well, the funny story, I was doing a talk in Austin doing kind of about using IFS for group psychotherapy, and I'm like, who is an expert in IFS and group psychotherapy. So I did some research and I found a one chapter on this in a book called uh, Moments of Meaning, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. And Annie had a chapter and it was fantastic and it was so helpful. And so I was like, oh, I want to know more about this because there isn't still, I don't think there are many people who talk about integrating IFS into group work. So I called Annie and I got consultation from her and we just headed off immediately. I mean, it took a while for me to get to her because she's very busy. She's doing a lot of talks and you know, she's teaching at Harvard and so on and so forth. Anyway, so I talked her into to meeting with me. We headed off. The Austin talk went really well. You know, Sarah Lynn and I were working together and and we're very process-oriented people. I was like, I, there's like an element missing here. And I'm learning about this in our doctorate program in uh, leadership psychology. Like you need a good mixture of people to kind of make a project go forward. And Annie was the missing link. And I was like, why not? You know, she's smart. She's dynamic. She's a powerhouse. Needless to say, I called her up. But we're interested in actually being like an author and an editor as part of having a book of your own. And she's like, yes. And I think there's another really important piece of this, Yoon, which is that you and Sarah Lynn were approached by the publisher. That's right. Topic. Right. So you had this exciting project underway. 
when I came into it. That's true. And and it was an exciting project and it was an exciting idea. To, Sarah Lynn and I had never written a book before, so it was so overwhelming to even think about it. The idea for the book came from a lot of the workshops. We were doing these workshops, being group leaders. How does the gender of the group leader affect group dynamics? We're running these workshops. I can't even remember the name of them now. It's something about women, sex, and power, I think. It was complicated. I mean, there was Sarah Lynn is white. I'm Korean. It just, there was a lot of richness, but there was no, uh, very little literature on this and little direction we're getting from, from even the, the top analysts. And so we're about to kind of fold these workshops because every time we did the workshop was just so hard. And then the publisher came up and said, this is a great workshop. Are you interested in writing a book on this? I guess that's one way to find out and create the thing that's missing, which is yeah. more voices and more writing about this topic. Of course, we had to say yes. Do you think writing about this topic helped you to better understand what was hard and how you could approach it? I mean, for sure. I think it was James Baldwin who said the whole language of writing is finding out what you don't want to know and mm. what you don't want to find out, but something forces you to anyway. I think writing and getting into therapy are very similar. I think writing can be one way to find out and get to know your unconscious. It's scary, right? So there's um, the writing process really gave an experience of what some of these themes that were coming up and having to kind of focus on it and really make sense of it was very organizing for me. I would yeah. really agree with that. And there were, there were so many things that I thought about or experienced or felt powerful to me that I never had really put into words or articulated to myself even about my positionality, what it has to do with my experiences, what gets projected onto me as a woman leader, what really revs my engine as a group leader, what does that have to do with gender dynamics and, and other aspects of my identity. So writing about it was really powerful. And I would say even more so was editing these broad range of chapters where people were raising issues that I had never read about. And in many cases, has never had the opportunity to talk about. And it opened up a forum for discussion right at a time in our, I think, our our national consciousness that was so, so profound about race and power and privilege. So I had to do a lot of uh, introspection, soul searching, vetting my ideas with other people, figuring out what my own blind spots were in the writing and editing process. And it was clarifying as you wrote. Absolutely. And very enriching. And I also love what you said about the different chapters, because that was one of the things I was struck by as I was reading the book, is that each chapter eloquently addresses a very different dimension of the topic. So I would love to talk with you guys about how you assembled this group, how you brought the other co-authors together, and then what it was like for you guys to work as a group on the making of this book. For me, the highlight of this project was working with the other authors and my co-editors. We met most Sunday evenings, you and Sarah Lynn and I, and we really sustained me right through the pandemic. We had a blast. We'd have a glass of wine and talk through what we were working on, what we were editing. Luckily, we got to meet a lot of the other authors in March of 2020 at AGPA, and we really had a good time. And I think we we envisioned this as a group in itself, as a place for people to really support developing these ideas, being in relationship with each other, really being part of a community that was really, you know, having these important conversations. You know, the three of us just put our heads together and said, who are the rock star women group therapists that we know? 
who do we think has mm-hmm. something interesting to say about this? Who would be fun to work with? How do we ensure diverse representation of culture, sexual orientation? The process really kind of helped us think about how limited we are in the contacts we have. I mean, you, Annie has a huge network, thank goodness, but I, it, it helped me realize that we don't really have a diverse thought to choose from. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised. There there was another aspect of diversity that was important to us, which is that we wanted to have some people that were seasoned, that had written and published and spoken and, and had familiar names. And I think we all also wanted to give an opportunity or extend an invitation to people who hadn't published or presented or, you know, or newer into the field who we thought had something important to say or who who we wanted to encourage into their own leadership, who we wanted to encourage to take ownership of some of of these ideas and maybe write for the very first time. So in a small book, we really tried to have a range of people and obviously left out many people that we would have liked to include it and don't in any way represent everybody that should be represented in this book. We really, I, I really saw it as, as a start of a conversation. And part of what we talked about a lot was who got included, whose voices got represented even here, and whose voices didn't get represented. And that you know comes back to the whole intersectionality conversation. Is this a book about women or a broader non-binary frame, et cetera? In the introduction of the book itself, you guys spoke about how in the writing of the book, you found a lot of the dynamics that were getting talked about and explored and challenged coming up within the group itself. There were a couple of folks who actually turned down the invitations because there is this boundary between a therapist and their patient. And having something published means exposing some of their identities. Some folks would like to keep that private and maybe not ready to talk about this, you know, much more personal aspect of their lives. And much of the book, we encourage authors to be able to just speak from their lived experience, tell their stories. We didn't want this to be this academic book that was about, you know, how to work with groups depending on what category you belong in. It was a very personal sort of, dependent on each author's like readiness to talk about and give voice to some of their deepest dilemmas and, and conflicts and also who they are authentically. And sometimes it's not that analysts and group therapists are not authentic, but transference is important in having that sort of separation between private and, and uh, their clinical office persona is important. We're very respectful of that. At the same time, we wanted this to be a book that would be taken seriously academically. We, we did ask every author to ground what they wrote in a theoretical framework. I think part of the point of the book was to challenge the idea that there is one theoretical frame that's applicable to all groups or all leaders or all populations or ways of thinking. And so I was really delighted with the different range of experience and perspectives theoretically and academically that people did bring in to scaffold the aspect of the chapters that involve their lived experience or personal experience. The question about how we worked as a group that we really tried to keep in mind some characteristics that that some people might associate with women leaders being less hierarchical, wanting to be collaborative, trying to really use our emotional intelligence and our communication processes. To this day, I'm not really sure if we were being philosophically 
non-hierarchical or step stereotypically conflict avoidant in our decision to to alphabetize the editors, the co-editors, rather than have some kind of other way of evaluating who should go first, for example. And we also really grappled with how to organize the chapters and and that felt too limiting to put sort of frameworks or boxes around different chapters. And we ended up doing that alphabetically. And I think just kind of for fun, deciding to do it by first name rather than by patriarchal last name. So we sort of tried to play with some of the themes that we were challenging in the book, in our organization of the book itself. Very creative too. I mean, it seemed like one of the themes that was being woven throughout the whole book was power and how power gets organized, how that's been organized historically. And then what are some different ways of working with power, sharing power, actually Mm -hmm. having it be something that shifted out of this sort of um, dominance and of hierarchy to something that's much more shared. Exactly. Right. And power is really interesting because it's created by the group. Who has the power is actually voted on by the followership. So what's interesting is while one person could be sort of given the power, they may not feel empowered. So they may have the authority, but they don't have actually the the power to be able to make the real decision. It's hard because especially this idea behind like playing nice, we're therapists, we're reasonable, intelligent people. We don't like, you know, have, you know, the primitive feelings, we're, we're evolved. We can be civilized. That's not true. You know, like sometimes we want things and we feel slighted and and we are biased and we have assumptions that are may or may not be based on reality. Maybe it's more historical. So historical. I didn't say hysterical, but that is kind of funny. Sounds like it could be. <laughs> so so then all of that really meant that we have to really slow down and sometimes get into kind of a messy situation where we've got to be able to talk this through. And there's a lot of talking, a lot mm-hmm. of talking. And and sometimes like, you know, being okay with not getting what you want. I think that's being able to tolerate that and be okay with it in order for the greater goal. It was a very important lesson that I learned. And things don't always go the right way. You know, you don't, you're not always aligned in the same direction. It's okay. You know, you'll live, they'll live. And there's some learning opportunities there, absolutely. And maturing opportunities. So that's really, it was, it's hard to explain the whole process. I would say if I had to do it again, I was like, that was a really hard experience by God. And then if I, if somebody asked me if I would do it again, I'd say, yeah, of course. I loved how we talked about those issues between us as an editor group. You know, one of the primary themes is how do leaders, in particular women leaders, own their own authority, power, tolerate their own and others' aggression, speak for their own aggression, tolerate others' aggression coming towards them, make space for it, become more flexible in relationship to it. And I really enjoyed the conversations we had among us about being able to speak for parts of us that held frustration, competition, envy, ambition. And I also thought it was really important the way we talked about racial dynamics among our editor group and when different people felt heard or silenced in different ways, when people felt that there were biases or projections that were emerging. I I really liked the way we 
worked towards, I'm not saying we did a perfect job, but really worked towards putting our money where our mouth was in terms of some of the values that we were trying to write about. And it was so hard to find anything else to, that gave us some context for what was going on with us and in, in these dynamics also in the co-editor group and with authors. It was very difficult to find something where, you know, a model of like, how do they deal with this? How do they talk about these things? It was exciting. Like, well, there's really nothing out there. So we've got to make it up, <laughs> you know, somehow make sense, at least put some words to it and to for people to know that it exists and that there's it's important to keep talking even if we don't have the words. And to use that absence as an opportunity to bring in your own thoughts about how it may look. That's right. I think that, I don't remember who said it, but necessity is the mother of all invention. And I think that this discomfort and the uncomfortability and not having something, it's really important to kind of have the support and work together to move through that, not away from it to fix the problem, but just be in it and then kind of be able to sort of work through it. Similar to like a really hard problem. It's not really a problem because it's a circumstance. I think that's another thing I've learned. It's like, it's not, you can't solve a problem you don't have because it's not a problem. It's a circumstance. And this is the circumstance of our lives or as human beings is that we have conflicts and we have competing needs and we've got to figure out how to work together. And I think, you know, all three of us, you tell me if you agree with this, Yoon, but I, I think all three of us would feel that in some ways we are people who, who in our relative milieu, overfunction, take on a lot of responsibility, find ourselves sort of doing other people's work at times. And so I, I think we work really hard to make sure that we took our own piece, but no more than our own piece to really have it be a fair process of work. But I felt very backed up. You know, I felt that if I was having an issue with needed help editing something or time crunch or, you know, that there was, I felt that there was a lot of grace in the process as well. We have, we have different skill sets. We have different capacities for detail, being detail oriented or being more philosophically rambly or whatever it was. And, you know, I, I thought that we uh, held each other accountable and w- w- with quite a bit of grace. A hundred percent. I think most of like what you said in the beginning is you, like not over-functioning. I think you're highly functioning. And I do think that we come with our superpowers. I think you say, you referenced it in your chapter, superpowers are, you know, based on certain adaptations and we, and compensation, right? Our defenses. So that makes for a great team. And for sure, I think we've, we had a great chemistry, especially also with the authors as well. Just really different voices and people who are just really wanting to to do good work, to be honest and authentic. I thought that was really quite exceptional. At the same time, you know, this area becomes like, who's working overcompensating more than the other? And the reason for overcompensating is much on a hierarchy of of needs like works, right? It's like, I'm overcompensating because I'm an Asian woman who feels invisible and I'm the only, you know, person of color represented in the editor group. So does that put me, you know, higher on this ladder? It's, it was just so interesting how these conversations are no different from a lot of the themes that come up in our groups. And to be able to, to model that and see it happen in real time and to actually put words to it was really a challenge, but really exciting. So just honest conversations about like, did you mean when you sent me that email that I wasn't doing enough editing or because I felt kind of criticized, but I just want to check it out with you. These are conversations that are so important because smart people spend a lot of time talking around the issues. The projects don't go forward. A lot of us don't know how to communicate negative feelings in a way 
that doesn't actually uh, conflict with our own sort of ideas about who we are as nice people who don't have those feelings. And I think especially for people of color and women who and other marginalized identities, it's, there's a lot of real fears about speaking up. So those are real issues that need to be tested out in the real world. And in our group, there was a lot of adaptivity. There was a lot of range for us to have different feelings. So that was a very special experience. I think it's what we're trying to help our group members do all the time. And I think I got better at it through this process, through being in in a little mini group myself that was grappling with this. I think I got better at facilitating those conversations. And I think that's what we were doing is developing our range and flexibility. The title of the book is Women, Intersectionality, and Power. And at the start, you guys talk about how intersectionality is an organizing principle that's woven throughout the book as a whole. And I wanted to find out more about what you thought was essential about bringing intersectionality into the exploration of women leadership and power. Well, first, I had to say that I really struggled with expanding it because I felt that the whole issue of women in leadership had been so overlooked. I didn't want to leap over it again. And it became clear that if we were going to really challenge the idea that group psychotherapy literature has been historically developed by white Western men and generally ignored the impact of gender and culture on one's expression of leadership and authority altogether, that we had to really take a wider lens to it. And that led us, you know, so we began with a commitment to challenge traditionally male-derived norms and to understand the ways that clinicians' identity and personal and cultural experiences determine their perspectives and their capacities. And so we realized that we we had to include other aspects of identity and culture in it. You know, Sasha Watkins writes about so eloquently in her chapter, we need to practice reflexivity, examine the impact of our positionality on group process. And I think Ali Kimmel talks about, and others emphasize this as well, how no, no aspect of identity can be understood in isolation. I really struggled with the mouthful of the title of the book. I wanted it to be leaner and more elegant, but I do think that a unifying theme in the connection in the chapters is wrestling with assumptions about objective theories and normative experiences, what's a normative therapeutic frame, and those have typically privileged white male heterosexual experiences. So all of that came under scrutiny. And there are so many nuanced pressures and unconscious factors that add to the complexity of like adult development, you know, and, you know, even in adult development, which we don't really talk about, there are stages and and those books and those theories are based on you know, written by white men. And so there's one, I think it's like Gilligan or something in 1980 uh, talks about, you know, adult development in women and then white women, right? So, and it's very different because of all of the factors that that really add to the complexity of what it means to become self-actualized. It has a lot to do with how external factors impact who you become, right? Like how you see yourself. And so I think that there's so many negotiating, competing needs and drives. And some of what's illustrated in the book basically came down to like, there's no clear way to appreciate how hard it is for any individual, right? But there is solace in understanding that you're not the only one going through this. An example of this is reading Sasha's chapter on the unwelcoming. I mean, I was brought to tears reading her descriptions Mm -hmm. because this is like the first time I've heard another person put into words experiences I've had that I, I thought it was just happening to me. Mm-hmm. But I knew there was something that was going on that I couldn't put words to. This unwelcoming as a foreigner, that's sort of the, the primitive regression that's spoken and kind of hidden and nuanced. Those things were really 
it's hard when you feel like you're somewhat making it up or is this really happening because no one is actually talking about it. And I think this idea, all these, um, there's no vocabulary for some of these, these issues around race. We're not really talking because we don't have the words. And also like what's written about them? Very little. And so it was, it was very eye-opening and I discovered how much I needed this actually as we went along this process. And how reading some of these chapters ended up helping you to feel seen and have aspects of your own experience. Absolutely. And yeah. also to understand how it manifests in different ways and that there are stages that people are in in racial identity development. Every person is in a different place, finding something about this in their own way, but that there's some pattern to it and there's a continuity here. And that there's a group of people who are experiencing this too. So implicit in bringing in it into intersectionality was the idea of challenging what's considered normal mm-hmm. and actually contextualizing it with a lot of other vantage points and identities, points of reference. Absolutely. And, yeah. That's, and also saying, hey, there are many people that are invisible in many different ways yeah. and that we don't have to fight against like, is this going to be about women, you know, being Asian or black or, you know what I mean? There, there are so many different experiences that are not I'm saying that our book has covered all of them, but we need to start somewhere. Right. And we're looking particularly at themes of leadership, in this case, in group therapy. But what is it? How do people experience a leader? What do people what gets projected onto a leader? What's acceptable in leadership behavior? And so much of that had never been explored in terms of what are, what are the valences when somebody is of a different gender, of a different racial background? How are they experiencing their own capacity to tolerate aggression, to establish clear boundaries, to deal with the implicit inevitable deprivation that group members feel, and how that gets interpreted through some of these intersectional lenses, I think was profoundly significant to understand. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of exploring. And as a part of that, I mean, you guys edited the chapters, but you also each contributed a chapter. And I thought it might be interesting to kind of deepen the conversation for us to look at each of your chapters and to talk more in depth about the ideas. So Annie, your, your chapter, Training Elastigirl, Developing Strength and Flexibility in Female Group Psychotherapists, focuses on core considerations for supervising women group leaders. And I wanted to talk to you about what inspired you to want to write about that topic in particular. Sure. I'd, I'd love to talk about that. I adore mentoring women therapists for so many reasons. I came of age in this field when the field was really entirely male dominated. And I'm deeply grateful for the support and inspiration of my early mentors, particularly Scott Rattan, who was an incredible teacher and supervisor. But as a developing clinician, I was also deeply influenced by the, the role modeling of female powerhouses that I had the opportunity to know and study with, such as Anne Alonzo and Yvonne Agazarian and other people in my community. And these incredible clinicians inspired me to find my own confidence as a woman in particular, what that could look like, how to channel my own power, my own aggression, become comfortable with asserting it as a group leader. And so one of my favorite things to do is to support that wisdom and inspiration and confidence in other clinicians. And as I write about in the introduction and in my chapter, I I do believe that women face particular internal and external challenges, women of all cultural backgrounds, that 
I think really require particular exploration and sensitivity related to the expectations that we have of ourselves, that we be nurturing, compassionate, and agreeable, and the, the expectations that other people have of us, that we be nurturing, compassionate, and agreeable, and that, and how that conflicts seemingly with the agentic qualities of leadership that people expect from someone in authority. That's the double bind that I talk about. It's incredibly gratifying when female clinicians that I mentor tell me that experiencing my comfort in that role, my comfort expressing and receiving aggression, my comfort establishing boundaries clearly and tolerating people's being disappointed in me, that that enables them to do the same, you know, whether that be handling difficult group interactions or negotiating their own boundaries. One thing I will say is that if I were to write the chapter now, I would want to take a more intersectional lens to it based mm -hmm. on what I've learned through this whole process and, and other processes, you know, many, many, many settings and conversations. But I really was focusing particular on gender identity in those experiences. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts or ideas on if you were to write the chapter now, any uh, new ideas you might talk about in it or nuances that you would pull out? I think I'd want to look at how some of these assumptions may or may not play out in different cultural landscapes. What's the influence now of non-binary identity? How does that show up in leadership? The other thing that is certainly true is that men, male identified people who are drawn into this, the caretaking professions do experience a lot of these internal conflicts. They don't, I believe, have as much projected onto them when they assert their authority, for example. But I think that a lot of the men that I work with in the training groups that I run, for example, deal with this internalized sense of, you know, maybe the parentified caregiving identity that they too have trouble with their own, you know, their own aggression, their own power. So I think that looking at how these themes are relevant across different kind of cultural intersections would be interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just curious. I was like, I wonder if these are white men. I wonder how it's different for Asian men and black men. That would be fascinating to to have a whole nother book on that topic. In the groups that I'm running, it's not at all all white men. It's certainly majority white men, but there, there are men from a range of different racial, cultural backgrounds. And I would say this this is a similar theme for them. That's interesting. Well, it was also interesting that I think both of your chapters focused on double binds. I wanted to see if you could say more, Annie, in the chapter you talk about how you see supervision trying to support women group leaders facing these kind of double binds. Could you say more about your ideas about how supervision can do that? Absolutely. So there's a lot of literature about, about female identity development and the way that women's leadership actually across different cultures highlights the challenges that women face of maintaining this stance, this nurturing and empathic, but robust enough to inspire confidence and manage boundaries and handle aggression. And the double bind refers to this contradiction between characteristics that people often unconsciously prefer in women and the characteristics that people generally expect from leaders. So in supervision, particularly in training groups, I really want to encourage mentees of all genders and identities to expand their range and flexibility with regard to what they can acknowledge and tolerate within themselves and what they can acknowledge and tolerate in relationship to their clients. So that means exploring their own assumptions, reactions, blind spots, coping skills that are influenced by family and culture and life experience. So so many of us come into this field, as I was alluding to before, with this deeply held desire or need to heal or protect or empower others based on the roles we held in our families. And I work to help supervisees to, to become as conscious and aware of that as possible. 
how those parts of themselves might cause them to respond to certain interactions by avoiding conflict, by excessively gratifying certain clients or overprotecting others, by overfunctioning or not valuing themselves financially, you know, economically as much as they ought to. When people come into my groups and they they are fret about the fees, I I say I guarantee that we're going to help you raise yours enough to cover the cost of this because so many people under you know women in particular do undervalue themselves. Supervisor plays such a crucial role in helping the therapist to identify counter transference reactions to such intense emotional enactments and competing roles, and to really appreciate the valuable information that can come out of that for a group without their, going into their own process of self attack. And I think that in particular with working with women, that supervisors point I really want to make is the vital role we play in helping female identified trainees respond to the full range of group members' feelings and needs without excessive caretaking and to value the productive energy of aggression. And that it's really important for supervisors themselves to be aware of what's being evoked in them in relation to their supervisees, gender, race, other identity markers, and to be aware of their own biases of blind spots, even in working with people. I had the honor of leading a group for 12 years that was observed by clinicians and interns who wanted to learn about running groups. And just last week, this is actually a really poignant moment in time for me to be talking to you about this, because just last week I had my last group there. And I was really so moved by the feedback that I got from everyone, but especially from some of the young women there who talked about learning to stand in their own power, trust themselves, handle missteps, not have to be perfect without excessive apology. You know, women are, you know, stereotypically so prone to apologizing all the time. And it's really hard as a group leader because you're going to miss 500 things and make 27,000 mistakes in every group. And if you can't handle what that feels like inside, it's going to be a very arduous role for you to be in. I was also just really touched in this goodbye conversation that a couple of the women spoke about developing their confidence through watching this group process, not just as therapists, but as mothers that they how much they learned about balancing the needs of their children, their clients, and themselves without having to excoriate themselves for their limitations. And I think also kind of bringing in a piece, you and you were addressing earlier, you were really interested in Annie's background in IFS. You talk a bit about IFS in the chapter and how IFS is a lens that's really helped you both clinically and as a supervisor. And I wanted to hear more about how you see IFS intersecting with supervision and how it's helped you as a clinician. Sure. And I, internal family systems is one of many models that deeply influences my work. I'm primarily a psychodynamically trained clinician with an emphasis on attachment theory. I've you know, had good training and influence with system-centered therapy, some modern analysis, The piece about internal family systems that I think is particularly profound and helpful in supervision, it relates to, as a group leader, I deeply believe in welcoming and appreciating the value of what each member brings into the group space, even or especially challenging dynamics. And I commonly refer to enthusiastically welcoming challenging behaviors or experiences, including our own counter-transference reactions as the AFCOs of group therapy. AFCO politely defined means another freaking growth opportunity. And I think that we do our best work when we respectfully invite and explore whatever emerges and what, what it induces and how it's working for the system as a whole. And so to get back to internal family systems, one of my favorite aspects of that model aligns really beautifully with this philosophy as a group leader, which is that all aspects of a person 
including problematic symptoms and alienating behaviors, have a positive intention for the system to protect or serve the person in ways that made sense developmentally at one point in time. So we don't try to get rid of resistance or barge through it, but really to appreciate the value of these hardworking protective parts of the system. You know, what I might call somebody's well-earned skunk spray. How did they develop this need to self-protect in this particular way? My internal family systems training helps me to stay in my seat and in relationship with these parts of my own system. So I can remain, you know, so that rather than getting triggered by somebody's defensive or, you know, their own aggressive behavior, so I can remain as compassionate and curious as possible rather than becoming overly activated by a group member or or dilemma or by a supervisee's dilemma, what in internal family systems we would call blended. For example, my internal family systems work helps me stay aware of my own biases, my blind spots, my agendas, to hold them in mind compassionately, to be forgiving of myself when I blow something, which I will. It gives me a language to help clients identify their own parts and appreciate themselves and their own protective systems. That really decreases defensiveness and reactivity and, in my experience, builds group cohesion, helps people tolerate difficult conversations and, and develop empathy for self and others. So it's really about helping helping downregulate defenses, helping people tolerate, a, you know, again, back to a broader range of flexibility, expand their, their capacity to tolerate what comes up in themselves and what comes up in others. So it's kind of working with the group within. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm not doing a lot of internal work. People are familiar with the internal family systems protocol. I'm not working that model with people's internal systems. I'm really using it to help people unblend from their defenses, speak for parts without overly activating other people, subgroup around shared experiences. Somebody's having a fight. I might get interested in how this person's working on trying to express anger in a safe way. And this one's trying to, you know, has a part of them that's trying to express anger working in a safe way. Like what is it that people have in common? underneath their apparent differences and and internal family systems. We work a lot with polarized parts. You know, I have a part of me that wants to eat the chocolate cake and a part of me that calls me a jerk for eating the part chocolate cake. Well, we want to sort of drill down into what are, how are both of these seemingly polarized parts of the system trying to serve? And that happens in groups all the time, how people who enact different seemingly conflictual roles are working from a place of, you know, maybe a similar fear or a similar primary process or similar core conflict. It sounds very depathologizing. It's very depathologizing. I think it's an extremely respectful model. And I think it actually helps people tolerate more emotional contact. I think people are less likely to get scorched and hung out to dry, but to really be able to to deepen their ability to have conflictual, difficult, challenging interactions and also deeply intimate ones. And you, this is an approach you've been interested in as well? It's really uh, changed my life in a profound way. You know, that combined with the modern psychoanalytic approach has really helped me understand how to work with some of the more pre-edible aspects of people's development. And especially in terms of IFS, it feels like to me, like it allows for resources that are already inherent in the person and allows to work with the, that grain of light and sort of develop, use that to sort of expand and sort of works and, and sort of honors the defenses in similar ways that the moderns actually joined for a very long time. The intervention is actually something that's 
the patient choose the opening for change is something that's initiated by the patient. And it's and the transformation happens not as a way of kind of getting rid of, but to kind of getting to know and allowing mm-hmm. to integrate. So that to me feels really organic and also supportive of the relationship in a way that allows for the autonomy and independence of the of the individual who's coming or help because there is a huge power difference and there's and I think it's really important to in the position of the group analyst or, or group therapist to really have a strong internal compass and and the space to allow the patient to to choose. Yeah, and I think that's something you really zero in on in your chapter in terms of how a group leader dealing with uh, racial projections and having their own trauma stimulated can stay grounded and available as much as possible. I think that's a good link actually over to your chapter. You talk about a different kind of double bind where uh, women of group leaders are the target of racial projections that stimulate their racial trauma at the same time that they're also responsible for meeting the maturational needs of the client. That in and of itself just sounds so powerful and challenging. Before we kind of shift into talking about some of the, your ideas about how to respond to that, is there more that you could say about that double bind itself and how you understand it? Well, it's interesting because how I understand it depends on where I am in my own development. I think that as I learn more and grow more, that there's a way in which I understand it differently. Now, at this point, it doesn't. there is a reality that's a fact that there are projections that are different and that activates a, a stress response, you know, trauma response of the past, a historical racialized trauma. How I understand it now is that, you know, I'm learning uh, a little bit about, Kagan talks about adult development and that's something that we don't really address in our training. It's kind of interesting because I've learned in my early training at Yale Chastas, Center, study center, I understand the development, you know, of children to adolescents and all the all the nuances of that. But there isn't a lot about adult development. And it's very interesting to think about the big picture, sort of how are we as a collective, what is our evolutionary process? What is how do we evolve? How do we change? How do we grow? And so this idea, Kagan talks about like when you get to an adult, and I think there's a certain level of stability that occurs. As you grow up in your younger years, who you think you are is mostly where you grew up and all the external environment that kind of gives you the idea of who you are and what you are. And that stability and sort of the sureness of that is helpful when there's so much physiological change and hormone change happening. But you get to, an, to be an adult. And so how do you grow, right? So this growth is very interesting because I think most of us are practicing with adults. Kagan talks about the levels of development, socialization, which is like more than half the population. There's this idea that socialization, which is most of the population, it's essentially like, you know, I want to be like everyone else and I want to be able to do the, the right thing and sort of be in this, you know, have this identity, this role. If I have a negative feeling, it's hard to hold both. So I'm going to project some of that out. In psychoanalytic language, that would be more like the pre-adult or sort of the early years. And then there's the self-authoring stage, which is, I think, 30% or 20% of the population, where there's a certain kind of self-determination. There's like, okay, I realize that I can love someone and hate someone, and that's that I can tolerate that, that, and that I can make my own choices, right, and create who I am. 
And then the the one percent of the population gets that self transformation stage, which I think as a therapist I would I'm striving for one percent though. This is when there's a level of intimacy that's really uh, generative, and this stage is is only after midlife. You're being around somebody like that, and I have a mentor who's like that, Mitchie Rose, where I'm transformed by being around them, and I have an effect on them, and they're transformed by me, and there's like an intimacy there that's like really profound. So that's a beautiful place to want to get to, but sounds like few of us get to that place because one of the things that's really interesting is I think as we turn into adults, there are a few moments where we have that kind of crisis where the glue that's dried around our identity gets to break open and that we're distressed enough to be able to kind of reconfigure and to sort of wonder about who we could be. And so I think you did a podcast before with, uh, with Avi, who kind of speaks to that in a different way. You know, that there's important times to, to self-regulate and contain. And there are times when it's really important. I think roofs really provide that experience of really like, kind of like pressure cooker to kind of get something sort of to shift a little bit. And group leaders with enough skill and training can provide that kind of experience. So... Going back to women of color, I think there are so many projections and external experiences that solidify a certain kind of reaction, defenses, skunk spray. I think people of color need to really have to work through something much harder that's actually an added layer, multiple layers of external constraints and, mm-hmm. and things that tell them who they are. And it's one much more than just, you know, I have poor self-esteem because my brother got to play sports and I didn't. There's so many more experiences that really create scars. And those those scar tissue has has consequences. It has strength. I mean, what is the difference between being invincible and invisible? Mm. You know, there's a lot of strength that comes from that, but there's also something that's invisible. And if you don't spend the time to really move into that pain, it's going to kind of reappear in many different ways. And absolutely in your own treatment group, in your own office, it's going to walk into your office and it's going to find you wherever you are. And then you're going to add more scar tissue on top of that. Or you could take it as an opportunity to really feel the pain and really help your, be helped to understand it better and deeper and actually gain some wisdom from the experience. I'm not, you know, proposing that people go around like, you know, getting into difficult situations, but if you're in the profession, where you're a leader of a group and you have an opportunity to deepen your understanding of who you are and who you want to be, then there are opportunities to kind of explore that. That would be great. I love that expression, the, the glue that's dried around your identity. And I'm thinking about maturational needs and I'm thinking about maturation involving increasingly, that, that for every organism, increasing complexity. You know, we talk about the ability yeah. to opposing views, to tolerate polarized parts in the system and in the, you know, in the internal system and in the relationship. I, I think about Yvonne Agazarian, who I'm going to not say the quote exactly, but she she basically said that development has to do with in, integrating the similar and the apparently different and the different and the apparently similar. So I think that we, my groups have, have deepened and developed so much richness as people are increasingly able to tolerate conversations about similarities and differences that include demographic, social location, 
similarities and differences as well as psychological, emotional similarities and differences. And I think that the conversation about what the race, gender, and other identity factors of the leader is, how that influences what people say, what they project, they assume how flexibly a leader can feel he or she can move is really such a vital conversation to be having. I think that that was something you and you were emphasizing in the chapter, both how you as a leader set as a part of the contract that difference is going to be welcomed and, and talked about actively and how you frame racialization as a defense mechanism. You know, I really loved, I think you had one line that it's not enough just to say racism is bad. There's a, a deeper psychic intervention that needs to be made around what the process of racialization is. And I wondered if you talk more about how you see racialization and how you work with your groups to create this kind of collaborative environment where that's going to be something that's actively engaged. It's a thing that happens and it's a thing that we do. What is the purpose of that thing that we do? That's really what I'm getting at. It's like to label it and then have it be safe. I've identified it. We've actually called exterminators. It's gone now. There's a reason why it's happening. It has a function. And what does that function say about the individual's character structure, their level of development, what needs weren't met? How is this thing helping them? What is the secondary gain in actually being involved in racializing the other? These are very important questions that we just step over because we try to eradicate it as if it's like some kind of disorder. It's in all of us and there's is there a reason why it exists. Let's understand it better. Let's find the language around it. You know, it's very helpful to have words for very primitive feelings of hate. There was a professor who talked about how the pleasure in hate, you know, and there's this like excitement that happens around like sort of like being pumped up about like as a group against another group. You know, there's like pleasure, there's joy, there's stimulation. It's like a concert. You know, it's like a football game where you're hating that other team and, and hoping they would just get pummeled. So there is something that's very primitive and very pleasurable about and, and connecting around this, this very intense feeling. And it's just as passionate as love. What's relevant as group leaders is to be more curious. And in order to help groups feel safer, I think you do have to contract. You do have to really establish who's in charge, who's responsible in the group. I think that there's a way in which establishing the norms is important as a person of color who's running a group. There are certain things that are not allowed, like acting. If those things are clear, and also not to jump into it, but just like, what are some, explore the concerns about talking about this. What are you afraid will happen if we if you had racist thoughts towards me or another person in the group. Let's talk about what that would be like for the group and really just explore those concerns as much as possible instead of going into action or trying to fix or trying to say, no, we're not going to do that here. That's not allowed. I think it requires the right uh, group of people and everyone needs to be understand why they're in the group. Like, I'm going to, I want to grow, you know, I want to be a better person. I want to be a better father. Well, this is part of that. Like, if you don't understand how you hate these kinds of people, how are you going to understand how much you hate your child when like you're having to drop them off and pick them up and you feel like an Uber driver and they're screaming at you that you're 
you're late, you know, and this is like the fifth place that you've dropped them off or like soccer or whatever, or homework or mall or whatever. So, you know, like it's, you have to tolerate those feelings and not act on them. You can do that in a group. And it's important that you talk about them because you're, you're going to act out on it if you pretend that you don't have those feelings. One of the things that I found really compelling in your chapter was you actually talked about an instance with a group where you became the target of that kind of hate, what you needed in order to tolerate the racial trauma that it was stirring for you. And that led into talking about emotional insulation, which right. was also something that I think, Annie, you spoke about from a different vantage point in, in your chapter. Right. But I wondered if you would say more about emotional insulation, what it is, and how you think people are able to cultivate it and grow it. I think emotional insulation is a term that kind of reminds me of like self-energy, which is like what IFS calls like what we have inside of us. It's a certain kind of internal compass. It, it, it typically comes from having done some of your own work and having that sort of sense of connection with yourself that's greater than like what's happening in the moment. It's not a defense. It's something that's inside that doesn't really change and stays flexible and it's still in connection with yourself and others that makes you porous and pliable and flexible, not fragile and rigid. You know, that's the difference between emotional insulation and like a emotional defense. One is rigid, one is more flexible. Yet when you're a group leader and you have so many transferences, you have to really have a centering like internal compass that's flexible and adaptable and allows for a range. And that really, I think it just comes from doing your own work. Like it's so important for group leaders to be in a group, to get to do their own work so that they, they are the instrument, they are the, to be able to really tune their environment, their instruments so that they can have that range is really important. Something inside of you that can withstand whatever happens outside of you and insulates you from it, like an internal warmth. And self-compassion for what gets stirred in you. Exactly. Yeah. Standing and space to have it be there, have it exist, have it be useful information without becoming retaliatory or rigidly defended ourselves. Right. And even if you are rigidly defended or retaliatory and having self-compassion means like you can actually have those reactions. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad leader or that you, you know, like I mean, you don't like fall apart. It's like, hey, you know what? I was retaliatory. And how did that affect you? That came from a place that's historical. It was not the right choice at that moment. That's very healing. Be able to have enough insulation to be able to admit that you are. I mean, it's, you're not going to get it every time, like you were saying earlier. But how do you come back? How do you repair? Yeah, from, from a gender perspective, you know, I noticed myself in a group being uncharacteristically reactive when a bunch of male-identified group members were talking over a couple women. And I had a pretty strong reaction to it and got probably a little sanctimonious in wanting to redirect that. And I'm still being upbraided for that by one of the male group members in particular. You know, he's really still very angry at me and has, you know, I think it's it's opened a door for a lot of transference to work. And also for my capacity to tolerate that I, I had a biased reaction. I had, an, you know, a non-neutral, you know, reaction informed by my own identity, a sensitivity that I was 
that I hold that I projected onto my group member. And and I think what you're saying is being able to tolerate that without an excessive self-attack so that we can hold space for what's coming towards us around it and have compassion for where it comes from. Is and really- to grow from it. Uh, the emotional insulation comes from being able to grow from an experience instead of stopping or defending against it. It's very difficult because we want to hold on to who we are, but what we're about. And, and I think that when we're holding so close or there's a defense, it's an opportunity to say, oh, that's just, there's something here. You know, why did I close that down? Why, what was that about? And to be transformed by our patients and our groups. I mean, we are, we're in, everyone is in this profession because they want to grow and transform and, and learn about themselves. I'm thinking about this idea of mutual change. And it reminds me of this excerpt from your chapter, Yoon, where you said, having an insulation barrier allowed me to sense the racial trauma, but not absorb the projections, therefore helping me to identify and focus on the task at hand, addressing the aggression to uncover and mitigate the primitive underlying emotion of fear, helplessness, and inadequacy. When we do not react with fight, flight, or freeze, we understand the ways racism deforms the mind of the group member in a racist self-state and can address racist projections just as we might address paranoid projections, habitual hostile attitudes, or ego fragmentation. That's right. It's very, very gratifying to be able to sit with your with the rage. And, and this is, again, you're not in danger. This is your group. They're here to learn, right? There's context that's important. But to be able to sit with a very strong feeling and to be able to be with it and until it sort of simmers down, you know, there's a, it's interesting because my mentor talked about, you know, rage is something that's really helpful. It's a surgical tool. But oftentimes, rage is mixed with helplessness. And that makes it, it's like, um, you want to use your aggression, not like a butcher, but a skilled surgeon. And if, you, if there's a part of you that hasn't resolved, or, or of course, with historical, you know, racialized trauma, and all of us have experiences where we were made to feel helpless in the face of someone else's intense emotions. If we can resolve and heal those parts of us that and not feel the helplessness, that rage is absolutely powerful. And it can be used in a very directed way to define clear boundaries, to be able to say the right things in that right moment. It could be absolutely compassionate and healing at the same time. That requires a lot of work, a lot of doing your own work. And I'm not saying that I do this all the time, but once in a while when I get it, it feels really good. Yeah, and I think that that actually circles back in some ways, Andy, to your chapter, because one of the major themes was how to become comfortable with aggression. Understanding, I mean, there's a double bind social that women are socialized into around having aggression. So being able to work with and to claim your own aggression becomes a really vitalizing aspect to leadership itself. And I wanted to just see and kind of open it up to hear from both of you around what do you think are some of the things that have helped you each to become more comfortable with your own aggression? Well, I would say that one of the things that's helped me become more comfortable with my own aggression is the idea of healthy aggression as a life force. Just talking about anger, we're not just talking about conflict, we're talking about moving towards what we desire. We're talking about being able to say no so that we can say yes. You know, things like boundaries, things like how we value ourselves, things like being able to have an opinion, to not be talked over. Those are all a forms of healthy aggression. So to really understand that has helped me become 
you know, my own sense of entitlement to take up space. I am, I'm a very small woman, so I have to take up a lot of space in other ways than, than with my body and seeing how learning, how redirecting a self-attack and helping a person to express their aggression towards me in particular, how much energy that liberates, how powerfully that dissipates shame, guilt, and self-attack. From a personal perspective, I grew up in a family where people tend to talk about each other and not to them. And I feel very excited when people talk to me about me, even if it's something that they don't like. So I, I feel like I can really sincerely invite and welcome other people's aggressions toward me, both because I find it so useful and potent in the development of the person that I'm working with, but also for me, it feels like an honor when somebody can do that, that they're really trusting me, they're trusting me to hold them in it, they're trusting me to tolerate them. And over time, that has become a very rewarding aspect of what I do. Yeah, for somebody to say that it's a form of direct engagement, I've been doing this for a really long time and in experiential group processes for a very long time with with a whole range of leaders, including people like Yvonne Agazarian, who were so skillful in helping to redirect self-attack and liberate that, that energy. And often tell my group members, if you take a risk to say something here or do something that's scary to you, either the dreaded result that you predict is not going to happen, and that's going to be very interesting or the dreaded result that you predict is going to happen in some form, we're going to stay in relationship, we're going to work through it, and that's going to be very interesting and maturational and developmental. And for me, that's happened around both expressing and receiving aggression so many times that I am seeing how powerful and positive it is that I, I really believe in the, you know, aggression will predictably arise and will inevitably arise due to the frustrating nature of group, the limited resources, sibling rivalry that happens and leaders have to draw aggression to ourselves to prevent scapegoating and interrupt patterns of self-attack that might be masked as victimization or helplessness or her feelings or dissociation or spaciness. And over and over again, I see how that liberates energy in the group for intimate, that becomes available for intimate contact, for confrontation. It might look like competition, flirtation, striving, all that really filthy aggression have getting to witness and experience that and experience in my body over and over and over again has really led me to believe it deep in my bones and to not ever feel afraid of those kinds of interactions. I shouldn't say never afraid, but when a you know a part of me feels a little nervous or a little apprehensive, then I I try to just help that one settle down to make space for what I know to be true. I'm most of my experiences have been the only woman of color in in these therapy groups. Over and over again, the project negative projections always landed on me. What am I doing that's inviting this? And you know, I would talk to like mostly my white colleagues and supervisor, and they're like, "Well, it's you know, it's because you're assertive." Or, but there was something that wasn't about just that, and it didn't feel resolvable because there was no language around it. It was like the missing puzzle piece that I could not figure out. It, that's one of the reasons why it was so important for me to write this and to understand it better. Because if I don't have a concept, I don't even know what I don't know. And then my supervisors didn't either. And it's not in the literature. And so it's hard to know what to do with it. You think there's something that's happening to you because you're doing something, but it's actually a thing that happens in groups when you are the only one. 
only man or only woman or only Asian. I mean, it's, a, it's really important to kind of put that into perspective too, because in groups, I think it's really important to make sure that the group dynamics includes like not only one of this, per, like a kind of person, like you can't, it's really, it's very important to make sure you have two minority, minorities or like there's a mix of subgroups to make sure that that's the definition of non-healthy aggression. There's nothing productive that comes from that. Yeah. So in a way, your chapter was kind of a healthy expression of counter-aggression. <laughs> say more. Yeah. That's interesting. To push back, to acknowledge the parts of this that did not belong to you. And to frame this within a much broader racialized context, naming what's occurring in the room. That's right. I like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was a healing process for me to be able to write this and and create the language and have it, you know, to publish it. And it was an important one that really, really reclaimed experiences for me. And to be able to give to other people who may be having the same experience and and stuck in this sort of more, you know, industry where there's not a lot, lot of language around it. And lots of self-introspection about what you what what this means historically. Yeah, that may be true, but that what's also true is that I'm the only minority member in this group. And so it is going to stick to me, no matter what I do. And, and I've learned a lot from that, but it can be both. I just want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to do this talk with me. This has been very, very rich, and I have a feeling our listeners are going to really enjoy it as well. So thank you both so much for your time. Thank you so much for the the wonderful questions. It's been really exciting to revisit this material and and think about its impact. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is great.